Hello, and welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we explore the work of authors, artists, and thinkers. My name is Aiden Flax Clark. Today's episode is a conversation with New Yorker staff writer David Gran, whose most recent book is called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. Gran came by the library to talk about the book last month, and he was here for the special reason that he actually worked on the book at the library as a fellow of the Coleman Center. If you don't know about it, the Coleman Center is a pretty cool part of the New York Public Library. I mean, it's also cool if you do know about it. Each year, the center takes in a select group of writers and gives them nine months to work here on projects that will directly benefit from access to our collections. There are academics, journalists, novelists, playwrights, and so on who come through. And over the years, we've had incredible people here as Coleman Fellows. Colson Whitehead, Annie Baker, Angela Flournoy, Colm Toybean, Philip Gurevich, Anthony Grafton, Annette Gordon-Reed. The list goes on and on and on. And of course, the books that come out of there are no less amazing. Like David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon. Grant, who you may know as the author of The Lost City of Z, follows in his new book a series of cold-blooded murders that took place among the richest people per capita of the 1920s, the Osage Indian Nation in Oklahoma, who had become oil millionaires after black gold was discovered under their land. The series of mysterious deaths was one of the earliest cases that the FBI, under a very young J. Edgar Hoover, worked on. It's a fascinating story, but I'll let David Grant tell you himself. He spoke here with The New Yorker's Jeffrey Tubin. Let's get to it. Thank you. Hello, everybody. How's everybody doing? Look at this beautiful room. Great crowd. Hi, David. Hello, Jeff. Look at David Grant. You got like what more could you ask for? Fantastic. All right. So we're going to talk about your book, which took you about 15 years to write. Is that, am I correct about that? Give or take one Give or, or two. Give or take, no. David, David is enormously skilled, not enormously fast, but it pays off in the, um, in, in the reading. Okay, so we're going to talk about, I mean, we're going to talk about the, the story, but like, let's set the stage first. This is a story about the 1920s in Oklahoma. Like, what, what's it like? What's, uh, what's Oklahoma yeah. like in the 1920s? So Oklahoma in the 1920s, in particular where the book is set, which is in Osage County, where the Osage Nation um, uh, lived, was uh, a wild boom town. Um, it was the frontier. It was probably the last remnant of the Wild West. Um, oil had been discovered under the Osage land, so they had become um, the richest people per capita in the world. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, wait, no, no, oh, no, I'm no, getting, wait, too, wait, far getting too far ahead. Too far ahead. Too far ahead. Just like, yeah. I mean, the, it's, it's like barely a state, right? I mean, it's, it's really, yes. it's, it's a long time ago. It's a long, well, it's, it's not that long ago, but it is, was the formation. Oklahoma had not been a state for a long time. Right. Um, it was remarkably lawless. Uh, you still had outlaws roaming. You had very fragile legal institutions. Um, and because of oil, which we'll get into, it had drawn um, basically every sort of character you could imagine to the area. So you had cowboys, you had New York money men, you had oil barons. Um, so it was a very unusual place, but it really was this last remnant uh, of the Wild West in America. And, and you have the Osage tribe. Now, who are they? So um, the Osage had once been um, uh, controlled much of the Midwest of the United States. Um, in the 1800s, Thomas Jefferson referred to them as the great nation. 
um, and he met with a delegation of chiefs um, in 1804 and promised to treat them as friends. Uh, but within a few decades, um, he began to force, uh, they began to be forced off their ancestral land. They lost about 100 acres. They were eventually um, budged into a reservation uh, in Kansas, and by the 1860s, they were once more under siege by white settlers. And it was at that time that a, a Osage chief had stood up and he said, we should move to this area, which was then Indian territory, it would later become uh, Oklahoma, uh, because the land is rocky and it's infertile and the white man will finally leave us alone. So they moved in the 1870s, they actually purchased their land and they settled uh, in Oklahoma. Um, by that time, uh, there was only about a few thousand of them. Other uh, numbers had dwindled from forced migrations and from disease. So, so they go to this incredibly unpromising land, in yeah. part because it is so unpromising. Yeah, it's forsaken at least from the eyes of white settlers because it wasn't good for agriculture. And one of the many wonderful things about David's book is that it has a lot of photographs, and and the you get the sense of this just really forbidding landscape uh, that the Osage went to, as you say, largely because they thought no one else would want to go there. But for better or worse, as it turns out, there's oil. Yeah. And there's a lot of oil on there. And, and, and there's no doubt that they own this land. They right? own the land. They had a deed to the land. They had purchased the land. And lo and behold, it was sitting upon some of the largest deposits of petroleum in the United States. With just a couple thousand of, of the members of the tribe. Yes. So, so, okay, all this oil is discovered. Then what happens? Well, it's important to first um, explain... A, a, a very unusual wrinkle, which is um, the Osage were allotted, which happened to many American Indian nations. And what that was was the kind of culmination of the U.S. government's uh, very brutal assimilation campaign. They were, I'm sorry, what was the allotted. word? Allotted. Allotted. And okay. it, it basically meant we will break up your reservation, divvy them up into parcels, um, and try to turn you into private property owners. Um, but it was also done because it would make it a lot easier to procure their land. So when the Osage were being allotted in uh, 1906, um, they had a deed to their land and they had more leverage than other tribes. And they negotiated very hard and they managed to slip into their treaty a very curious provision. And what this provision said is, we will maintain all the rights to the subsurface minerals. And at the time, the Osage knew they had a little bit of oil, but nobody thought they were sitting on a fortune. And they managed to get this into the treaty. And so after 1907, when Oklahoma became a state, much of the surface area that the Osage Reservation controlled disappeared, like so many other reservations. But they continued to control this massive territory about the size of Delaware underneath with all the mineral rights. They had become the world's first underground reservation. Hmm. And so then... When oil was discovered, um, they um, still controlled that area, uh, and that was a key part. And, and this becomes this incredible amount of money that the, the tribe um, that the, the, the tribe controls. And so, how, how does the exploitation of that resource begin? So um, each of the Osage, and there was only about two thousand of them, was given a head right. Um, and that basically guaranteed them a share in the mineral trust. 
And in the early 1900s, 1910, they would get a quarterly check from any time a prospector would lease the land or pay royalties. Um, and initially it was for a few hundred dollars and then a thousand dollars. But within a span of about a decade, they had accumulated millions and millions of dollars. Um, in 1923 alone, just to give you a sense, uh, these 2,000 or so Osage um, earned collectively what would be the equivalent today of $400 million. And all the famous oil barons who you've probably heard of from J.P. Getty, E.W. Marlin, Harry Sinclair, the Phillips brothers, um, many of them first made their fortune in the Osage. And there was such demand for these leases that they would literally hold auctions underneath this great stately elm tree that became known as the Million Dollar Elm uh, because the leases, a single lease would go for as much as a million or two million dollars. Th that's a remarkable part of the book about this tree. Yes. I mean, yes. it really is this tree where th they, were, they would hold these auctions and, and extraordinary amounts of money would change hands just in this sort of informal setting. Yeah, yeah, they would have an auctioneer and the bidding, sometimes the oilmen would fight with each other and even wrestle on the ground. Um, the, they would arrive on private, um, a lot of the oil barons would arrive on their own private railroad cars. Um, they were known as the million dollar specials. They would arrive, um, they would, these auctions were held um, four times a year. And you know you could be there, and there'd be a prospector who might be worth nothing, and you could be have a prospector next to you who was J.P. Getty, um, all bidding for leases. And and you um, describe how wealthy the Osage become. Yeah. And and it's it's sort of comic uh, because it, it's like the Beverly Hillbillies, to make a sophisticated reference, probably you don't get, uh, but it's, um, but it's, it's, it's real. So um, the Osage um, uh, very quickly um, were worth um, millions of dollars. They lived in uh, terracotta mansions. Um, they had um, servants, many of whom were white. Um, they, it was said that whereas one American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 cars. And these images, reporters would travel out to Osage territory um, and kind of tantalize the readers, often with prejudice, because of prejudice and because of envy. Um, they would describe the quote unquote red millionaires and the plutocratic Osage. Um, it, it, it drew, um, an enormous fascination from the public because it belied these long-standing stereotypes of Native Americans that could be traced back to the first brutal contact with whites going all the way back. Okay, so all of which is fine. I mean, people make money and, and, that, and there's nothing sinister about that. How do they start to have re the, the relationships with white folks who are trying to get into yeah. the, uh, the, get their hands on the money. So um, the money, uh, these boom towns drew all sorts of characters, um, both the oil barons, oil men, but also drew um, outlaws, stick up men. Um, and there was so much money, many of the Osage were scapegoated for their fortunes. And 
uh, quite astonishingly, um, the US Congress, uh, a bunch of white men, would sit in these mahogany uh, rooms, these panel rooms, um, debating the Osage wealth. And they passed legislation requiring the Osage to have white guardians um, to manage their money. So here you could be an Osage chief who led a great nation, and you had a white guardian telling you what kind of toothpaste you could buy, uh, what kind of car you could buy. They even put limits on the money. Um, this was an abhorrently racist system. Um, quite literally, it was based on um, the quantum of blood in you. If you were a full-blooded Osage, the US Congress um, deemed you, quote unquote, incompetent um, and appointed a white guardian. Not only was the system racist, um, it created a criminal enterprise um, in which these white guardians would swindle um, millions and millions of dollars through, sometimes just through kickbacks. They would tell you, oh, buy a car at that store, and the owner of that car would then kick back money to you. Sometimes they would just skim off the top. Sometimes they would just directly embezzle uh, and abscond with money. That was just one of the ways um, uh, money was taken. But there was also marriage. Yes, and I was, yeah, and, and so head rights are really a central part to understanding this story. Um, the Osage had wanted to keep the mineral trust collectively owned. And so unlike the land, the surface land, you could not buy or sell a head right. Um, you could only inherit it. And what this led to um, is white people trying to find ways um, to get their hands on these head rights. Um, and marriage became one of the ways to marry into the families in order to have access to this money. And what's important to understand is a head right, um, if you were able to get a head right, um, you weren't holding up a, a, a grocery store. You were stealing Fort Knox. I mean, the money that was coming in um, constantly through these checks was enormous. Um, and it led to a very nefarious, calculating, multi-layer plots, which I'm sure we'll get into. Okay. <laughs> Who was Molly Burkhart? Um, Molly Burkhart um, is one of the central figures in the book, um, and part of the book is actually told largely from her perspective. Um, she's a really remarkable woman. Um, she was born in the 1880s uh, in a lodge, which is like a wigwam. Um, speaking only Osage, practicing Osage traditions. And within a span of about three decades, uh, she's living in a mansion. Uh, she's married, she has white servants, and she has married a white settler from Texas named Ernest Burkhardt, who had been her chauffeur, chauffeured her around. Um, she's speaking English. She's somebody who is straddling not only um, two centuries, but in many ways, two civilizations. And Tell us about her family. So um, she had uh, uh, three sisters, and um, she became, and the family became, a prime target of the conspiracy um, to kill them. And it began in 1921 when her Molly's older sister, Anna Burkhart, disappeared. Uh, Molly looked everywhere for her. Um, she had her husband, Ernest, help her. And a week later, uh, Anna Brown, uh, her sister, was found in a ravine shot in the back of the head. And this became the first hint, um, not only that Molly's family was a target, um, but that the tribe had become a target. And, and what is so 
chilling about this book and this story is that it's not it, it, it's not that stealing money is is the way people get rich they kill people to get rich it, it's it's murder is the vehicle for getting rich and 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 how does that talk about how that story starts to unfold yeah. in 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 the Osage. So there, there, it's it's almost hard to present the sense of terror um, after um, Molly's, and we'll just talk for a moment about Molly's family. After Anna was shot, uh, not long after, her mother um, grows increasingly sick, becomes more and more insubstantial, and within two months she dies as well. And uh, it later turns out evidence suggests that she had been poisoned. Um, not long after that, uh, Molly's other sister, Rita, um, they were so afraid, they had lived out in the countryside, they had moved to live closer to Molly. And one evening there was a uh, loud explosion. It was about three in the morning. Molly woke up, she went to her window, she looked out, and the house where her sister had been, um, there was an orange ball rising into the sky. Somebody had planted a bomb uh, underneath it and detonated it, killing not only Molly's sister Rita, but Rita's husband and a white maid who lived in the house. So one by one, Molly's family are being systematically eliminated. And it's not just Molly's family. Other Osage at the same period are dying under mysterious circumstances. Um, just to give an example, there was a champion um, steer roper, an Osage steer roper. He gets a call one day, he, he leaves his house. When he comes back, he suddenly drops dead. He's frothing at the mouth. Um, it's later revealed that um, he was given what was likely strychnine, which is an extremely brutal poison. It literally causes your whole body to convulse um, as if with electricity, and you're conscious while you're suffocating until you mercifully die. Um, poison uh, became one of the central means of murder. And the reason that was is, and it's part of the theme of the book, is that law enforcement back then was um, very poorly trained. So even though doctors knew about toxicologies that could determine if someone had been poisoned, in these areas there was no crime lab and nobody would test somebody. So it was very easy to cover up a crime. Um, and so many Osage were poisoned during this period. How do the Osage react? I mean, <laughs> they obviously notice that a lot of people are dying under extremely suspicious circumstances or just being out and out murdered. Yeah. You, you talk a little bit about that. You just you mentioned it briefly, but you know what is it like for them, notwithstanding their all this sudden wealth, to see um, so many of their um, compatriots die? Yeah. And there really was a genuine sense of terror. This period became known as the Osage Reign of Terror. Um, the Osage at night would string lights around their houses to hollow out the dark um, because they were so afraid. Um, they wanted to be able to see intruders. Uh, children were not allowed to walk uh, the streets alone. Uh, many got guns. A number of Osage moved away. Um, Osage today refer to that as a diaspora. Um, and what was so horrible is... Um, there were very few places they could turn. Um, the white uh, authorities were often indifferent to these crimes. Yeah, well, let's just yeah. talk about sort of law enforcement yeah. at this point, like because that that's obviously a big part of your book too. What, what who's in charge? I mean, what 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 you know? All these people die. Like, 
who do you call? Yeah. So um, one of the things that uh, shocked me uh, was just how lawless the country was back then in the 1920s, and in particular areas like this. So you would have often in an area like this a sheriff, um, but they would have often no training. Um, the boundaries between a good man and a bad man were extremely porous, so they often had criminal backgrounds. Um, there was also a great deal of corruption. It was easy to buy the law. This created often a vacuum um, that was sometimes filled by private detectives. So Molly Burkhardt, for example, hired private detectives to try to fill this void. Um, but privatizing justice had its own problems. Um, many of the PIs could be easily bought for the highest bidder, and they too often had criminal backgrounds. Um, so the problem was there was very, there were powerful, there were, there was a structure, um, but, um, that structure really did not function, and the scales of justice um, really turned a blind eye. And because um, the Osage uh, were Native American, there was an enormous amount of prejudice, and so um, often the authorities just turned a blind eye to these crimes. But the magnitude of the, the, the deaths uh, eventually draws attention in Washington. Yes, the Osage uh, in 1923, by then, just officially, there had been more than 24 um, Osage murders, and even several of those who had tried to investigate the crimes. Uh, just stop. 24, 24 out of 2,000 people. Yes, more than 24. Well, well you, you think, yeah. I mean, yeah. towards, I mean yeah. you but say even, towards the end, yeah. you think it's considerably more than that, but suppose it's only 24. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that in and of itself is pretty extraordinary. They were becoming not only the wealthiest people per capita in the world, they were becoming the most murdered people per capita in this very short span of time with the deaths. And several of those who tried to investigate the killings or stop the killers were themselves killed. Um, I describe in the book uh, 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 an attorney who was thrown off a speeding train who had tried to um, catch and investigate the killings. There was a man who went to Washington, D.C. to try to get help from federal authorities. Um, he was um, abducted, and his body was found the next day uh, with his head smashed in, um, and he'd been stabbed more than 20 times. And it was at that point where the Washington Post reported at the time uh, what was already abundantly clear to the Osage, which was a conspiracy to kill rich Indians, is what they said, the paper said. Um, and the Osage in 1923 issued a, a resolution from their tribal council asking for federal authorities who would not be tainted by some of the local corruption to finally step in. And that's when a very obs then obscure branch of the Justice Department, known as the Bureau of Investigation, uh, which would later be known as the FBI, enters the case. And, and who's the head of the Bureau of Investigation? So, um, uh, originally when the case um, is goes to the, um, t well, originally when the Bureau takes up the case, it's actually a guy named William Burns, who's a very famous PI, but also incredibly crooked. Um, and the, and Bur the Burns Detective Agency yeah, the Burns, still exists. Yeah, they were like yeah. the Pinkertons. Yeah. And there were a lot of Burns PIs. Um, Hoover was the deputy. Um, so when the J. J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, J. Edgar Hoover was the deputy. And then in 1924, he is appointed um, acting director and takes over the case. And it would become um, one of the FBI's first major homicide cases 
and one of J. Edgar Hoover's first homicide cases. And one of the reasons that is is because back then the Bureau uh, was kind of this weird hodgepodge agency with a few agents, had very limited jurisdiction over crimes. They really didn't handle murder cases. They weren't supposed to carry guns. They actually did not have the power to make arrests. All this would come in the 1930s. Um, but they had jurisdiction over American Indian reservations. So this murder case fell to them. Well, uh, one of the many sort of weird things, uh, fascinating and weird things about your book is that it is the only book published in the last 50 years where J. Edgar Hoover is a good guy. <laughs> uh, and, 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 but, but he is, basically, right? Well, uh, I don't right, know. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. Right, well, um, Hoover, you're right to me. I yeah, don't know. Hoover is interesting. Um, you see all the elements of Hoover's character, his, his megalomania, his paranoia, um, Hoover takes over the case. He's, he's incredibly young. He's, he's only uh, 29 when he yeah. takes over the Bureau. And what happened is um, the Bureau badly bungled the case for the first two years. Um, they had the same problems as local law enforcement with incompetence. Um, they made no arrests. What's more, um, they got an outlaw, a guy who is, a, everyone in this book seems to have appropriate names. His name was Blackie. And um, they got him out of jail, and they wanted to use him as an informant. And instead, he slipped away, robbed a bank, and killed the police officer. So Hoover has just become uh, acting director. It's coming out of the Teapot Dome scandal, where an oil corruption scandal where the Bureau was disgraced for its actions and he is terrified of a scandal. And so Hoover's interests um, are probably less about justice than about protecting his hide and cementing the Bureau's reputation as he tries to build the bureaucratic empire. But that being said, he does want to solve the case because he knows what's at stake. And after really bungling the case, he turns it over to a frontier lawman, a guy named Tom White. Okay. Now, it was obvious to me in reading the book that Tom White was someone you invented in order to sell the movie rights to the book. <laughs> but, you know, I admire that, so I, it was fine with me. Um, Tom White is just an unbelievable figure. Also, you know, he's... His name is Tom White. Yeah, they all right? have the, yeah, the so names. Anyway, the, yeah. They're all Pynchon-esque names yeah. in this book. Um, so Tom White is in many ways um, like Molly Burkhart um, in that he is in many ways a transitional figure um, who straddles two centuries. He was born on the Texas frontier in a log cabin. He came from uh, a, a family uh, of a frontier lawmen. He grew up, uh, he became a Texas ranger. Uh, at a time when justice was often meted out by the barrel of a gun. And by the time Hoover summons him to Washington in 1925 to take over the case, he does wear a cowboy hat when he shows up to Hoover's chagrin, but he's forced to wear a suit, um, and later he's wearing a fedora. Um, he has to file paperwork, which he can't stand, and he's struggling to adopt these new techniques of detection, fingerprinting, ballistic analysis, handwriting analysis would become an important part of this case. So he also is somebody, um, in many ways, this, this story is about the formation of this country, and he in many ways embodies that uh, when he takes over the case. So what does he do? So um, he knew, uh, given the, the threats, given the local corruption, 
um, given the fact that other investigators have been marked, he decides to put, the put together an undercover team. And what you need to understand a little bit just for context is Hoover's vision of an agent back then was college educated, um, always Caucasian, <laughs> usually Caucasian, loyally, um, usually Protestant. He had a very specific type of a new agent that he wanted. Um, and he was purging a lot of the old frontier lawmen. But he kept a few of them on. They were known as the cowboys, and White was one of them, because they were the only ones who actually knew how to investigate a crime. And so White put together this undercover team of the cowboys. They were the frontier lawmen. Interestingly, um, one of those operatives that he recruits to the case was American Indian. And they didn't keep statistics back then, but I think it's probably safe to say that he was the only American Indian agent in the Bureau at the time. And they all assume covert identities. Um, they go in as cattlemen. Um, one poses as an uh, insurance salesman, and he'd actually once sold insurance in real life. And he actually sells real insurance policies in Osage County. And they begin to try to um, gather evidence uh, and collect and follow trails of evidence. And and how do they how do they do that? What do they do? Well. There were many twists and turns of the investigation. In many ways, it became less like a, a criminal investigation than an espionage case because there were double agents. Um, they didn't know who to trust. The reports kept leaking. You had you never knew who in authority was working with you and who was working against you. Uh, agent operatives were quickly being trailed. Even though they weren't supposed to carry guns, they carried guns because of the danger. Um, they do many things, including befriending um, members of Molly Burkhart's family. Um, to see what kind of evidence they can get. Um, there is one man in particular who um, they befriend, and his name was William Hale. And he was um, Ernest Burkhart's uncle. And he was a cowboy who had shown up in Osage territory in the turn of the century, dirt poor, had become a cattle baron, and was now the most powerful man in the region. He was known as the king of the Osage Hills. And um, they befriend him. Um, and ultimately what they do, um, as you would know from covering what, they follow the money. That's what they really do. They follow the money. They follow the trail of money, and that's what eventually gives them the breaks they need. Okay. I, I think it's incumbent upon these folks to buy the book further, for, <laughs> you know, to get much more out of this. I don't want to give away too much more. L let's just sort of cut to the end. What happens to the Osage? I mean, what, what, there are trials, there, there, I mean, the, the, the investigation runs its course. It's very dramatic. Yep. It's brilliantly told in the book. But, but just talk about as a cultural matter, what happens to this part of Oklahoma? So, um, the Bureau is ultimately able to at least capture a couple of the people, and there are these trials. One of the questions is not just could you catch the killers? but then could you convict them? And that's a central theme in the book because of the level of corruption. And because of this question is, would 12 white male jurors convict fellow white men uh, for killing Native Americans? Um, much of the Osage money was ultimately swindled. Um, and then the Great Depression came and a good deal of fortunes were lost. And over time, a lot of the oil 
was depleted. Um, when you go there today, well, well, just just yeah. stop there. I mean, you spent a good deal of time. What's there now? I mean, what what's in yeah. this? So, I mean, the Osage Nation remains very vibrant. Uh, they have their own institutions. They've taken enormous measures to protect themselves. Um, they um, so they still have a large presence, but a lot of the wild boom towns, the places where Molly Burkhart grew up, uh, where many of these crimes took place, are either gone from the map. Um, sometimes you could just find uh, the remnants of the facade of the old boomtown buildings, um, but many of them feel like ghost towns. Okay, so, so that's the happy ending. Um, <laughs> uh, what, how did you find, how, find out about this story? Let, just, yes. Let's talk a little bit before we go to questions like about your process. Like how, yeah. I, I mean, had you ever heard of this I thing before? I, I, mean, I remember I, when you told me yeah. you were working on it, I'd never heard of yeah. it. Yeah, so I heard about it from a historian back in uh, 2011, and I was shocked that I had never heard anything about this case. I, I did not know that the Osage had been the wealthiest people per capita in the world back then. I had not known that they had been serially murdered, and I not, had not known that this had become one of the FBI's first major homicide cases. Um, and after learning this, I traveled out to um, Osage uh, County, and to see, to look into the story, to see um, what kind of information might be there. And I visited the Osage Nation Museum, and I described this in the book. Um, this was 2012, and you can actually see the photograph on the title page if you look at the book. Um, there's this enormous panoramic photograph on the wall. It was taken in 1924. It showed white settlers along with many Osage, it looked like this very innocent-seeming pageant of people, um, but a panel had been cut out. It was just missing. And I turned to the museum director, who would later become a friend of mine. Um, at that time, I had just met her. And I said, why is that panel missing? And she said there was a figure that had been standing there who was so frightening, she had decided to remove it. And she then pointed to the missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there. And she went down into the basement, and she brought out an image of the missing panel, and one of the masterminds of the Osage Reign of Terror um, could be seen peering very creepily from the edge of the photograph. And the project really grew out, that was really for me a turning point, and the book really grew out of trying to understand who that figure was, who the devil was, but also on an even deeper level to understand here was something that was so painful, the Osage had removed this picture because they could not forget. And yet, here were so many Americans, including myself, who were completely ignorant of this episode in history. And so part of that quest was to fill in that, that missing blank that so many of us have. And, and what does the title mean? So uh, Killers of the Flower Moon uh, grows out of, uh, comes out of Osage tradition. Um, the Osage have... Um, uh, name each month of the year after a moon. And the month of May is known as the little flower killing moon or the flower killing moon. And that's because during that um, month, uh, the prairie is covered with these beautiful little flowers, little bluettes, Johnny Jump Ups. Um, they look almost like confetti when they spread across the, the countryside. And then larger plants come and steal their light and water and slowly kill them. And the month of May is when Molly Burkhardt's sister Anna's body disappears and is later found dead. Uh, so the first major murder takes place in that month. So obviously this took place in the 20s. There, is, there was no one alive 
who had firsthand knowledge. No, there oh, was. Believe it or not, there was. There was. It was amazing. There was. Um, but most were third generation. But there was one woman um, who has now sadly since passed, who was a little girl at the time who I spoke to, who was a, f a member of Molly, knew the Burkharts, and uh, could tell me stuff. But most were second and third generation. I spent a lot of time doing family trees and tracking so, down is, descendants. But, but, but what was the... I mean, it, one of the interesting things about your book is that it was a big story at the time. I yes. didn't realize that, that it, it did get some, a mm -hmm. good deal of press coverage nationally yep. during the 20s. Yep. But, but obviously, you did a lot of primary source yes. research. Where, where did you find that? Where, yeah. where were... The, what, what was that? What yeah. that consist of? Well, um, I, I should thank the New York Public Library for my Coleman fel Fellowship. I spent a lot of time pulling books out of the stacks. I think stack. you probably should have done that earlier. <laughs> yes, uh, in the, pulling, yeah, pulling, yeah, pulling money out of the stacks. Uh, um, they even had um, on microfilm, I could get a lot of the old FBI reports here. Um, the, the, the materials came um, through both finding descendants who would have records, but also going to archives. So using the New York Public's Library, I spent a lot of time out in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, where there's a branch of the National Archives. Um, a lot of um, Bureau of Indian Affairs records, court records ended up there. It looks like a, a enormous gymnasium, like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and you literally, you go in the morning, you get like a pull at a certain time, and some pitchfork would pull out your box and bring it in. Um, I spent weeks out there, half the time your eyes are watering because you know, you're know just looking at these documents, these bureaucratic records, you don't know what you find. And then suddenly you open an envelope or a folder and you find something like the secret grand jury testimony, which at least to the best of my knowledge had never been made public. Um, another time, um, I pulled what was called the Guardian records, and I talked to you a little bit about the Guardians. Um, so in the Guardian records, again, I didn't know what I would find, and there was a book. I had a fabric cover. It was for a couple years, I think like 1917, 1919, something around there. And all it was was a name of a guardian with the Osage quote-unquote ward that they were in charge of. And next to the name, if the person had died, they had just written the word, often just in pencil, the word dead. So I was looking at this. I had really wanted just to check somebody if who their guardian was. But I started seeing people had like five or six a guardian would sometimes have five or six or even 10 Osage who they had been in charge of their finances. And I started looking at the names. And somebody, some bureaucrat had just written the word dead, dead. And you'd skip a couple, dead, dead. Sometimes a guardian had five Osage, all of them were dead. It's 100% murder rate in a span of a few years. And what you realize when you're looking and holding this book, which takes a while to really recognize is you're looking at the hints of a systematic murder campaign. And some bureaucrat had kept this forensically as if they were just like moving merchandise in a ledger. I then in, tried to investigate those individual cases and you begin to find suspicious circumstances about these deaths, many of these deaths. Um, let's take some questions. Hello. Um, you mentioned um, chapter one that Molly initially thought that um, Anna was at a jazz club. Yeah. Um, how did you know that there were jazz clubs at Osage County at the time? <laughs> and like, what kind of yeah. entertainment venues were there? Did they go because of the, the because it was a boom town? Yeah. So um, in one of the records, what was 
helpful about this case when you're trying to get the evidence is that because there were so many investigations, there were PI investigations, there was multiple bureau investigations, there was state investigation, and there were multiple court cases. So almost all the witnesses, you could find fragments of testimony from sometimes multiple times. And in one of the accounts, um, one of the investigators mentioned that there was a thought that Anna had gone to a jazz club. <laughs> um, and I guess she would sometimes go to Kansas across the border um, uh, but these were wild boom towns, um, and they had um, Broadway shows would show up, you know, traveling shows would come and perform, and in fact, the night that Molly disappears, there's one of these shows that the family is going to. Um, there's still a, an old theater that they've actually renovated in town, Bahuska, um, where a lot of these shows would come uh, and perform. But um, you have to understand, again, the money was so enormous. Um, that you had um, almost everything uh, going on. And, and again, one of the things about the book that is so extraordinary is this creation, a recreation by David of this world that was bizarre even then, yeah. but today seems, seems even yeah. stranger. Yes, sir, as to the extent I can see you, uh, yes. Good evening. Uh, thank you for writing this book. I am an Osage. Oh! And, uh, <laughs> uh, very much so. Uh, I have a percentage of a head right. Okay. Um, and my mother and my father were both those age, and they would tell me stories about the good and the bad of the yeah. 20s and the 30s. Um, <clears throat> particularly, my mother would tell us stories about how their family were wealthy. Uh, they were blessed with uh, ranching and farming operations, and that the townsfolk would live on their land because this is the Dust Bowl time and they would oh, feed them and take yeah. care of them. So, you know, not, you know, the, the idea of just spending money per se wasn't totally the story. There were other things yes. that, were, that were going on out there. Uh, President Obama appointed me to be the special trustee for American oh. Indians. Oh. So I just recently finished that position. And this book is very timely. Mm. And I'll tell you why. And, and, I, and I, perhaps you could speak a little bit about that, yeah. but this was this story was the uh, genesis of the trust relationship mm -hmm. the federal government has to all Native Americans. And uh, that, that relationship is across the federal government. It is not just the Department of Interior. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is the, the, J, uh, the prison system, the medical system, so mm -hmm. it's very interesting. But right now in Washington, they are debating the uh, appropriations to the trust, and they were debating it when I was in the Obama administration. Uh, I'm wondering if you, have, have you been to Washington yet? Has anyone talked to you about this? Uh, because this is the, I believe this book should be on everyone's desk down there because they really are debating whether or not it would, now we can start cutting back the trust relationship, particularly the appropriations to the trust yeah. relationship. Have you mentioned this book in, in Washington yeah. yet? Um, I haven't. Um, but it, we agree it should be on every yes, desk. Yes, it should be on yes. every desk. Um, <laughs> and I, I didn't do as much on the contemporaneous research of the trust, but one thing um, I recently uh, did was spoke to a lot of Osage um, who, um, including one Osage, uh, who was a veteran of Afghanistan. He'd fought in the army, a guy named Chris Trill, I don't know if you know him. And he had walked uh, from um, Oklahoma 
almost all the way uh, to North Dakota uh, to oh, right. participate in the demonstrations. Mm -hmm. And he told me that along the way, he had thought about the Osage killings and the murders. And the issues are very different in the sense that they're separated by a century. Um, one isn't about getting oil money from the land for the Sioux. But he said, and, um, and some of the others they just spoke to, how it's still the same fundamental issue, which is about the protection and the rights of Native Americans and American Indian nations to control their own resources and land. Um, and Jim Gray, a former chief, had told me um, that he was shocked because there's been now talk coming out of Washington among some of Trump's advisors about possibly trying to privatize um, um, the uh, American Indian uh, nations and reservations. And Jim Gray had told me that he was just shocked that here we are nearly a century later still having this debate and still having this fight. Can I, can I just ask you, um, in your family lore, were these murders part of the story? Is this something you knew about? Uh, yes. Uh, we, uh, they called it the dark period um, on both sides of my family. Uh, my father's, one of his relatives was murdered in the 1950s. Mm. So, and I don't, and I know that that was still being investigated years later. Mm. Um, so it continued on, yes. you know, but it, it wasn't as, as uh, systemic as I think as it was in the 20s. But um, they, the stories were still told. Um, and I believe, or, or the way I remember it, it was always told to us in a way that this is what can happen. Mm. You know, this is, this is how it can go wrong. Boy. And no one really stressed the trust relationship. Mm. And I'll just, and I'll let you know, and I'll be very honest about this. In the Obama administration, many people at the highest levels were really not very familiar, well, mm -hmm. certainly weren't familiar with this story, but they mm -hmm. really didn't appreciate the trust. They mm -hmm. didn't, they didn't have, I think the lack of institutional memory yeah. uh, shocked me as an Obama appointee. Yes. And uh, I tried to, you know, round up the troops many times mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and I went to Capitol Hill and once again, the story was just not told, and yeah. it's, it's unfortunate. Well, you thank know. you for yeah. bringing, you so sharing much. your story. I really appreciate it. And Jim is a cousin of mine, oh. great, great cousin. <laughs> oh, all right, thank you. Uh, Jim, yes. Thank yeah. you. And just, uh, just to add one note about it, because one of the things that just struck me whenever I would go out to Osage territory over the last five years and spend time is, um, and it goes to your question, um, I spoke to a lot of descendants, including Molly Burkhart's uh, <laughs> granddaughter, Margie Burkhart. And when you speak to them, you really get a sense of how living this history still is for the Osage. Um, still decorating the graves. Uh, there's a ballet, an Osage ballet recently, which has um, a section on the reign of terrors. For the Osage, obviously, this is still deeply living history uh, three generations out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen behind us. Um, I'm kind of curious about like the physical act of writing this book when you're dealing with so much information from yeah. so many different places yeah. some of which is archival some yeah. of which is like you know news reports first-hand interviews 
What does that actually look like for you? Is you, it, you, it is so horrible to see his office. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. People would go in and say, what are you doing in here? It, it was, um, yeah. I'm sorry, did I interrupt? Go ahead. No, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's sadly true. My wife is here, who's uh, probably uh, squirming at the moment. Um, my office, I, ha I work, um, well, my, my home office where I did a lot of research, uh, uh, that wasn't Jeff, the main Jeff, office. Jeff the saw one part I saw? of the Jeff saw the oh New Yorker office. Um, so this did involve. Um, for my first book, I humped through the jungle, um, and I thought that was kind of arduous. Um, this was far more challenging and difficult um, to collect all this information. And unfortunately, I am not systemic like Hoover. I mean, one of the things I was researching Hoover is like how he had little files for everything and everything was perfectly ordered and like he had his secret sex bribery files in like the secretary's office and there was a special chain and say like D for destroy if you die. Um, in, in my office, the, I would collect the records um, and they would kind of stack up and pile up. But what I did and what took so long was partly getting this information because I really did not want this to be a book that just cataloged the dead. And I really wanted it to have the Osage perspective. One of the reasons the, the book begins with Molly's perspective is because whenever I read accounts, is she was just a sentence in these books. And it was often told from the FBI's perspective. And you're like, well, wait a second. What, what was it like for this woman watching all these people die? Um, what I would do once I had all this information stacked in piles is I created almost a central repository on the computer of information that could then make, which I would type in, which then allowed me to kind of manipulate the information, you, have more access did, to the, the, it. I, I, I'm making fun, but I mean, you did seem to know where stuff was. Well, that was kind of impressive. I do have yeah. my own crazy order, but um, the, I will say the best part of um, uh, finishing the book, um, um, along with being here with you all tonight, was being able to pack up some of those boxes uh, in my office so I now have a clear path to my desk. <laughs> um, I think we have come to the moment where you are all obligated to buy your very own <laughs> copies of this, and I hope you'll join me in thanking Thank David you all for coming. All right, again, that was David Grand talking with Jeffrey Tubin about his most recent book, which he worked on here. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. To learn more about Grant's work here and all the work of the Coleman Fellows, visit the Coleman Center page on nypl.org. As for this show, as always, we're grateful to you for listening. And if you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. On next week's episode, artist Nick Cave. <laughs>